0: That the problems facing our nation are not political, they're not economic, but they are first and foremost moral and spiritual. And of course, that's the wonder and the power of the gospel that through a spiritual birth, anyone can be changed. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away and a new life has begun. He can be, begin a dramatic process to change a life if you are born again.
1: Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogi. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today, Pastor Carl will talk about the problem of judging by outlining what it looks like and the solutions to the problem. We will see that James outlines three reasons why we should not, as Christians, judge one another. Let's join Pastor Carl as he begins in James chapter 4, verses 11 through 12.
0: Would you take God's word this morning, please, and turn to James chapter 4? If you are joining us for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this short little letter. It's only 108 verses, and it's a very practical letter written by a very practical man. Now, remember, James is the half brother of the Lord Jesus. And for him, our instruction needs to turn into practice. For him, our creed must be translated into conduct. Our doctrine must be transfused with duty. In a word, James is expressing a belief that behaves. And I'm encouraging you to read it once a week. And some of you have done that every single week since we've started. It only takes about 12 or 13 minutes to read through the entire book, and we have at least five or six more sessions beyond today before we're done with this short little epistle. A survey done by a leading pollster group in America reported that 40% of Americans said that they were guilty of at least one of the following. Cheating on a spouse, calling in sick when they were not sick, telling untruths, about a coworker in order to get ahead, cheating on an exam and fudging on their income taxes. Fifty years ago, the great pollster George Gallup, of whose poll still carries his name, he said 50 years ago, it is my view as a survey researcher that we are facing in this nation a moral crisis of the first dimension. George H. Gallup was a committed, born-again Christian who went home to be with the Lord some 40 years ago, and he said that ever before the tsunami of sin that is covering our nation and our world would be here. In either case, I still have to agree with the assessment that he made all those years ago that the problems facing our nation are not political, they're not economic, but they are first and foremost moral and spiritual. And of course, that's the wonder and the power of the gospel, that through a spiritual birth, anyone can be changed. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation, the old things have passed away and a new life has begun. He can be, begin a dramatic process to change a life if you are born again. And so James is focusing on some of the differences the gospel needs to be making. I hope you found it. It looks like it. James chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, you need to get one. Come to meet the pastor. We will give you one. James chapter 4. We're going to focus just on two verses, but we want to begin by reading verse 7 to give us a running start. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, The one who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, as you study the Bible, you learn there are two prominent themes that run all the way through it. One is the way to God. It's addressed at the lost person on how they can be saved. The other principal theme concerns our walk with God. The focus on the saved person, on how we can be sanctified, how we can grow. And though James touches on both issues, his focus is largely on the latter theme. He is a man who is not interested simply in stained glass theology, but grass-stained advice. He is writing to a group of Jewish believers who are high on their orthodoxy, but very low on their orthopraxy. He wants them to take what they're learning and to put it into practice. Now let me set the context for our passage as this book chart Reminds you again, this letter, as you read it over and over again, it is quite apparent that it has three major divisions. In chapter 1, he deals with the development of our faith, and he looks at three specific problems. The problem of pain, as we face trials and heartaches in this life. Then he deals with the problem of temptation, and that is followed by the problem of not applying the Word of God to our life. So chapter 1 shows us how we are to develop or to progress in our faith on a daily basis. When you come to chapters 2 through 4, you turn a corner in the letter, and the focus is on the distortion of faith. In chapter 2, he begins by dealing with our testimony as it relates to our relationships, to our good works, and then in chapter 3, with our tongue, and especially as our tongue is to speak the wisdom that comes from above. Then in chapter 4, where we are today, he addresses three problems that we should avoid. And so sandwiched between the opening chapter that deals with the development of our faith and the closing chapter that deals with the display of our faith is chapters 2 through 4 that deal with the distortion of our faith. And this middle section is really kind of a spirituality check. With a person who says they are spiritual who may not indeed be spiritual. You see, we tend to measure our spirituality differently than God does. We might ask questions like, how often do I go to church? How many Bible studies do I attend? How much theological knowledge have I acquired? And if we come out high on those things, we deem ourselves to be spiritual. But James, the real litmus test is how we treat one another, and as we will be reminded again today, how we speak about one another. So here in chapter 4, he focuses on the distortion of faith, and he deals with three thorny issues that were a problem in the first century church and that are a problem in the 21st century church. If you were here last time, we looked at verses 1 through 10, and he deals there with the problem of worldliness, God has called you, if you've been born from above, not to be worldly, but to be holy, to be a distinctively different person. The second problem that we will focus today in verses 11 and 12 is the problem of judging, the one who speaks unfairly about his brother. And then the third problem that we'll look at next time in verses 13 through 17 is the problem of perspective. And so in that section, he asks and answers the question, how do I as a believer headed for heaven invest my life wisely in eternity? Now, I've taken the time to give you an overview of the fourth chapter because once again, it is a reminder that our Christianity is not private and personal. It is public in its display. And what goes on in the inner recesses of the heart should show itself in a healthy way out in the public. God has called us into a community. And so he deals with communal issues here in the fourth chapter. Now last time, again, we dealt with the problem of uh, being worldly. Today with the problem of judging. And like in both sections... He asks and answers the question, what does it look like, and what are the solutions to that problem? So if you're taking notes this morning, this problem of criticism, this problem of having a judgmental spirit, James gives us three reasons why we should not as Christians judge one another. Reason number one, to judge is to respect God's people. To judge is to disrespect God's people. Please notice again how verse 11 begins. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother. Now, once again, he is addressing one of the major themes that runs in this letter, and it's the theme of the tongue. The first time he addressed it was in the opening chapter, and then we saw that extended pericope in chapter 3, where he dealt with control of the tongue. And in this section, all of a a part of humbling yourself before God and getting right with God and drawing near to God is the way we speak about our fellow Christians. And so James is going to show us some spiritual implications of speaking against a fellow member of the body of Christ. And the first reason we're not to speak against one another is seen in this word, brethren. It's repeated three times in this verse. Once in the plural, twice in the singular. In other words, because we are members of the same family, because we are brethren, and that's a generic word, the uh, new... NASB 2020 says brothers and sisters in sisters in italics to make non-thinking people hopefully thinking. But it's a generic word used throughout the New Testament. And please notice verse 11, he warns against speaking against a brother. And interestingly, this word translated speaking against, kata means against, it means to talk down, it means to speak evil of, it means to defame. This might include gossip, it might include criticism, it might include slander, someone who's on a search and destroy mission. But as we'll see in just a moment, it does not include being indifferent to people's moral choices or to false teachers. When you read the prophets of the Old Testament, and when you read the words of the Lord Jesus, they were very confrontational. At times, they were acerbic, and they were sharp-tongued. But too, sadly, in our day, we have a distorted view of the Lord Jesus. We have a view that only sees Jesus as turning the other cheek kind of Jesus, when we need to see a Jesus who also turns the tables over. And both are seen in Holy Scripture. Do not speak against one another, brethren. Again, you could say to speak disparagingly. Another way to translate it is running another person down. And to make matters even worse, he underscores against one another. Because both sides were going back and forth as he addresses this group of Jewish believers. They were running one another down. So when we speak against our brother, we're speaking against a family member. He who speaks against a brother, he adds, or judges his brother. So when you speak against your brother, in essence, you are judging your brother. Now this word judge, krino, is a neutral word in the Greek New Testament. It can be used positively, or it can be used negatively, and it all depends on the context. It has about a half different shades of meaning. It can mean to separate, to choose, to select, to discern, to evaluate, to determine, or as in this context, it simply means to condemn. By the way, in English, the word criticize, it can be used in the same way, either positively or negatively, context determines. Now, once again, the sensitive reader of this letter will hear an echo from the Sermon on the Mount. So don't lose your place here in James 4. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And we'll be going back and forth between these two texts. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7 is part of a section of Scripture 5, 6, and 7 that Augustine first called the Sermon on the Mount. It was a sermon given on an elevated place, and many of you have been there with me in Israel, and we've seen the very place. It's a class A spot where this particular sermon was given. Now look at 7 in verse 1. That chapter opens with these words of Jesus, do not judge so that you will not be judged. Now, this particular verse is misquoted by non-Christians, maybe more than any other passage in the whole New Testament. The command, do not judge, is not a command against being discriminating or evaluating. But as soon as you make some discriminatory evaluation, some debauched person will come along and say, ah, judge not lest you be judged. And this verse is taken out of context, and it's certainly one of the top 10 verses in the New Testament that is typically abused. But I want us to look at this verse in its context, because the word judge is the identical word that James uses in 4.11, and it will shed a lot of scriptural perspective on how we are to understand judgment. Now, the Epistle of James, you've heard me say it's the Proverbs of the New Testament because it has so many short little pithy sayings of application. But it's also repeatedly uh, compared to the Sermon on the Mount, and rightly so. If you read Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, there's no less than 20 comparisons between the Sermon on the Mount and what James, the half-brother of Christ, writes in this short little letter. For instance, just consider the opening chapter of James. He opens with the exhortation, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Just like in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10, Jesus said, rejoice and be glad when people persecute you. Or in James chapter 1 and verse 9, he spoke of the brother of humble circumstances glorifying in his high position much like Jesus in the beatitudes said blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God or in James 1:13 James addresses the subject of temptation just as the Lord Jesus speaks on the same subject in Matthew 6:13 or in James 1:22 of not just hearing the word but doing the word and Jesus does the same in Matthew 7 at the end of his sermon on the parable of the two foundations and of course here in James 4.11, he's talking about judging one another, just as Jesus does here in Matthew chapter 7. And it's the same word. So remember, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And since the Holy Spirit inspired the whole of Scripture without a single error or mistake, when Jesus said, do not judge so that you will not be judged, let's think for a moment first what he does not mean. First, he is not prohibiting law courts. There are some Christians in the history of the church who have concluded it is wrong for a Christian to serve as a magistrate or as a judge of sorts, and they quote Matthew 7-1 as proof. Some denominations, even in our day, still teach that, that a Christian cannot be a judge and a magistrate and obey Matthew 7-1. So I I hate to even address it. It's so obvious that that's not what it means, but since it is still a teaching that circulates in our country, let me just briefly comment on it. If you just read the book of Exodus, which Moses, of course, writes, and he's described as the most humble man who ever walked on the planet, God uses him as a judge to adjudicate the problems that the people in the nation would have. Or you read the book of Judges, same principle. Or you read Romans chapter 13, and the myth is quickly eradicated. So the Bible teaches that there's a need for law courts, for judges, for magistrates, for police, for armies. And many times in Scripture, it is God's people who are serving in that capacity. And by the way, while we're thinking about police... We need to pray for our police they are resigning in droves most americans are asleep as to a crisis that is unfolding in our nation defunding the police how absurd is that to get rid of the very people that god uses to curb and to protect the evil and there are many police officers who are now somewhat paranoid, afraid that they may go to jail just for doing their job. Certainly there are corrupt police, like there are corrupt preachers and corrupt lawyers and corrupt doctors in every profession, but the hundreds of thousands of men and women who serve in that capacity serve in an honorable way, and we are to respect them. So here in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is not speaking on the subject of magistrates or police, but he is focusing on the responsibility as individuals that we have one towards another. And so we don't want to take this verse out of its context. He's not prohibiting law courts for that matter, neither is he prohibiting critical thinking. Certainly all judgment is not forbidden by this command. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. You say, how do you know that, Pastor? Well, first, as you read the entire sermon, it is clear that the use of our critical powers is necessary and that we are called to be different from the people of this world. Jesus told us, for instance, in Matthew 5, 20, that our righteousness is to exceed that of the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's the whole key verse that unlocks the whole sermon. He is showing us the kind of righteousness that a believer who is going to enter the kingdom of God should have, unlike the phony, fake righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so he says we're not to be like the hypocrites in their giving, in their praying, and in their fasting. Well, how can I possibly obey those commands unless I evaluate the performance of others first? so that I know that my lifestyle is different. In addition, in the immediate context, the Lord Jesus is going to address three things, logs, dogs, and hogs. I did a sermon one time called Logs, Dogs, and Hogs. Evidently, you have to know something about a log, a dog, or a hog in order to be able to make an evaluation or a judgment. And so, for instance, in verse 6, do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and, tear, and turn and tear you to pieces. If you've not read the Bible very much, it may sound shocking from the lips of incarnate love to speak the truth in love the way he often does. He called Herod that fox. He called the religious leaders of his day whitewashed tombs. He compared the Pharisees to a brood of vipers. And here he calls certain human beings dogs and pigs. So why does he use this designation? Because whoever these people are, they are like animals. And they are not just like any animals. They are like animals with dirty habits. The dog that he's referring to is not your little well behaved lap dog named Fifi. He uses a word that describes the pariah dogs that would roam the valley of Hinnon where the garbage was placed and the unclaimed bodies of Gentiles were dumped. He also speaks here of pigs or swine, depending on your translation. Now remember, Matthew's gospel is written to Jewish Christians, and to a Jew, a pig was a ceremonially unclean animal that they were not to eat. In addition, uh, they were not only unclean in your ability to intake them, they were just unclean animals in general. They loved to play in the mud. And so a Jew would never, ever, ever think of taking holy food that was dedicated to God in a previously offered sacrifice and to feed it to a dog or to a hog. They would not think of doing that any more than they would think of taking a precious pearl and trying to feed it to a pig, because the pig might mistake the pearl for a pea, and when they began to swallow it and found it unedible, they would indeed turn and assault the giver. And so the picture of the parable to any first century reader is plain, but what is its meaning? What is this holy thing that he references here as pearls? Pearls. Well, remember, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And if you read Matthew 13, the kingdom parables then the pearl of great value is salvation. By extension, the gospel message, the Lord Jesus, who is the bread of life. And so Jesus was not forbidding us to share the gospel with unbelievers because that would be contradictory to his own mission in the very heart of the New Testament. And I hope you are engaged in reaching people this week. Starting next week, we're going to invite five people a week. At every entrance, entrance, there'll be five cards for you to pick up. And I hope throughout the month of May, you will invite five people a week, especially in God's grace if we're able to reopen this month. More information coming after the elders meet this week. But I want you to be reaching out. So God is not prohibiting reaching the lost, sharing your testimony taking someone through the plan of salvation that would be contradictory to christ's teaching who came to seek and to save the lost but he is prohibiting giving the gospel to a certain kind of unbeliever he's referring to someone who has heard the plan of salvation but they decisively defiantly violently even noxiously reject it as true I remember hearing Dr. W.A. Criswell at Dallas Seminary, where I went when it was once a great seminary, and now they are on the edge of heading in the wrong direction. So I pray for my school and the school I graduated from, and most of the students who are going there have no idea what's going on because they're theologically illiterate. But those men who graduated during the time that i do there was ongoing discussions of where that great institution once departed well one day we had w.a criswell the pastor of the first baptist church of dallas come to speak and uh, afterwards we had what we called a brown bag lunch where you could interact with the speaker and ask some questions and one of my fellow um, colleagues, so to speak, students asked the question, "Dr. Criswell, is there any one thing that you did as a pastor, and you're nearly 50 years at the time, and you're nearly 50 years of serving that you regret that you did?" And our ears perked up. Trust me. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, "One of my greatest regrets and one of the most foolish decisions I ever made." was to try to debate Madeline Murray O'Hare. Madeline Murray O'Hare, of course, was the one who was responsible for getting prayer out of the school. She used her six-year-old son, William Murray, as the case in point, who, by the way, later comes to faith in Christ. And he's the pr- president of the Religious Freedom Coalition. So where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, he's deeply committed to the Lord Jesus. In either case, she was a woman with a hatred and a venom like I never saw. Audrey and I, when we were at the University of North Carolina, went to her, her, hear her speak one night. And if you could hear a man anointed and filled by the Spirit of God, this was a woman who was filled and anointed by the devil himself. Now, at that evening meeting, she explained the substitutionary atonement that Christians preached and then went on to mock it. She talked about the resurrection. She was a confessed atheist. But Dr. Criswell was hoping that somehow through debating her, he could win her into the kingdom. But Jesus is teaching here in verse 6 that for a person who irrevocably rejects the truth, we are to withhold the gospel pearl. We are to practice spiritual discernment and the
1: distribution of spiritual truth. As James reminds us, the real litmus test of our spirituality is how we treat one another. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program James 010. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart, You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found in the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week Monday as we continue to Search the Scriptures.